Father, we look to You and to Your Spirit to help us understand what is before us. We face the danger of coming to such texts with which we're very familiar. Lord, I, I pray that we'd not simply scrutinize to find something new, but that we would be moved again to understand what You have done to save us from our sin and to give us a Savior that we find is history here and we find the joy that we have of knowing Him and walking in fellowship with Him. And I pray that it be a time in which we draw close to You as You, by Your Spirit, continue to teach and direct us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. At least the first 40 days of Jesus' life on earth unfolded in that small village of Bethlehem that we've read about here. The Mosaic Law did not require Mary or the infant Jesus to physically appear at the temple, but where's Bethlehem? Just five miles to the south of Jerusalem, and so a very easy journey for uh, the, the young family to make at that time was a reasonable distance. And so the scene shifts now from that village life to the bustling center of Israel at Herod's magnificent palace. Unbeknownst to Joseph and Mary, uh, both almost certainly still teenagers, uh, there are worshipers at the temple who are prepared to receive their son. There's no evidence that these waiters had received news of Messiah's birth in Bethlehem. We wouldn't be surprised if they had, but no necessary uh, knowledge that way. But in general, as we look at the lay of the land in Israel, there were those who would have very much anticipated the coming of Messiah. Daniel the prophet nearly pinpointed that day when he said there will be a decree from Cyrus for the Israelites to go back to repopulate the land of Israel, and from that point it will be 483 years and Messiah will come. So those with any interest knew the time was near, and that's one of the reasons there was so much interest in the city because of those who understood these prophecies. But one watcher, Simeon by name, had received a specific word of revelation. That he himself would not die until he had laid eyes upon God's Messiah. He did not know the date. He did not know the day. But hope was about to turn to sight as the longed-for child was right then being carried to the temple. We pick up the narrative there in verse 22. The newborn Messiah dedicated to the Lord in these first few verses. Verse 22, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought Him up to Jerusalem to present Him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So Joseph and Mary make that climb upward to Jerusalem. They do so for their purification here. seems that, they're, that the, Luke is taking this to be the family unit in general, because uh, technically only Mary needed purification. For Jesus, the purpose was twofold. It was presentation and then dedication, or we might say really more accurately, redemption. That is, Jesus is dedicated to the Lord as a firstborn son, and so money had to be paid to redeem him. And why was that? 
That ties back 1,500 years earlier from this date to the exodus of Israel from Egypt. Remember the night before God delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt, every firstborn son was killed. Firstborn of man, firstborn of animal. But an animal, in this case generally a lamb, was slaughtered and its blood smeared on the doorposts of Israelite homes so as to mark them out. So as the death angel passed, the firstborn sons were redeemed. They were spared. They were purchased with the blood of the lamb. As verse 23 indicates, then it's pointing us back to the law. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Exodus 13, let's go back to the Old, uh, the Old Testament support for this, what, what they are doing, what they're responding to. So Joseph and Mary are understanding Exodus 13 and verse 11. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites as He swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb, all the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, be by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Here it is. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. That is, they are, as was the case on that night, redeemed by a sacrificial animal. Uh, a donkey, you must kill the donkey as well, and this is how you're going to kill the donkey, breaking its neck, or you can redeem a donkey. A donkey being far more expensive and the loss being far more significant. So it too could be purchased, something substituted for it. So they're responding to this passage of Scripture. With firstborn sons, then, the family literally purchased that son's life, paying the redemption price. So Jesus, then, is presented to the Lord, His life redeemed, when Joseph and Mary dropped five shekels, according to Numbers 18. They dropped five shekels into these kind of, think of a sort of a trumpet uh, shape with a bell, and it's kind of turned with its bell on the ground. There were 13 receptacles like that in the court of the women. And they would drop these shekels in and thus redeem their firstborn son. So we think of the Herodian temple of Jesus' day. They're making their way. It's really a, a fascinating transition, just that short five-mile walk, short for them, probably not for a lot of us <laughs> today, but uh, they, they make that short walk upward toward Jerusalem, and this is the temple where they, where they enter. Now the court of the women is inside. It's not just women in there, but that's how far the women could pass. So uh, men and women that were Israelites could come in that far into the temple together, and in there were these receptacles where the boy would be redeemed. You remember, Jesus will later sit there and watch the widow give her coin and, and, and uh, teach on that, on that point. But for Mary's part, 
This is Jesus' part. Now for Mary's part, verse 24, to offer sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. The Mosaic law was stacked high with ritualistic imagery, including many ways that the Israelites would contract uncleanness, ceremonial uncleanness. Uncleanness did not necessarily mean that you sinned. You could be unclean from being human. And many of the laws, that was really all there was to it. The law was structured to remind the Israelites of their fallen condition, of the corruption of death that mars every aspect of our human existence. So if you touch a corpse, you were unclean. Nothing evil about that. In fact, they prepared their dead. And so many people knew that type of uncleanness. Several of the laws related to childbirth. A seminal omission, menstruation, intercourse, and childbirth itself rendered one unclean and in need of purification. There's nothing sinful about these acts as such. But it was a reminder of our fallenness, of our humanity. Ritual uncleanness graphically illustrated to Israel that only sinners are born into this world. And that only sinners die, with one exception, who came to fulfill the law. But under that law, a woman who gave birth was unclean for 40 days. At a convenient time after that period passed, then, if she would come with a lamb and a bird, a a pigeon. If her husband could not afford that second pigeon or turtle dove, then a second could be substituted for it. So two were given. And that would indicate that Joseph and Mary were peasants that were unable to afford uh, a lamb to offer for sacrifice. But there it is. I had it on the wrong side of my pictures. So we can look at Exodus 13 again. (laughs) Here we go. The new Messiah is dedicated to the Lord. The the, uh, narrative shifts now to the newborn Messiah received by Simeon. Verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and, his name, and, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Simeon was a rare jewel in God's collection of faithful servants. I, I can't wait to meet him. I have a lot of things I want to ask. Uh, about his day, but about his life. He was devout in his heart orientation to the Lord, and he was actively involved in the service of the Lord. He was a man, it says here, who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. The consolation of Israel was the messianic age, the dawn of that age. He was waiting for the Messiah to come and for that age to be introduced. And as the text will bear out, Simeon was not looking then for military intervention, as so many were in that day. He was looking for what? He was looking for a person. He was looking for Messiah. Personally, this expectation took on heightened poignancy, we find in verse 26, in that it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. The Lord's anointed, that is, the Messiah. So Simeon had this assurance from the Lord in a way that we don't understand, but we picture now Joseph and Mary, the infant Christ in arms in the court of women, now approached by this aged stranger. I'm assuming he was aged, but I think there's indication that that's likely the case. 
So Simeon anticipated Messiah's coming, and now he blesses God for Messiah's birth. Verse 27, and he came to the, in the Spirit into the temple, that's into the temple complex, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God. And he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. So they deposit these coins for the redemption of their son. We'd love to know if Simeon walked up and introduced himself to them or if he just came up and grabbed the child out of their arms. We don't know. But somehow... Sounding like he's an older man who's ready to meet the Lord and looking on Jesus, he looks on the salvation of his people. And that was enough for him. And as he looks on that child, let us affirm in our own souls that salvation from sin is never something we earn. He had received here the salvation of the Lord. Salvation from sin is not found in family or in church. Salvation from sin is not ultimately a creed, a confession, a body of doctrine, or right formulation of Christ's incarnation. All of these things important in and of themselves. Salvation is Jesus. And obviously the word that has been revealed to us and understanding of that word is essential to knowing who Jesus is. But it is the person of Christ that is the end. Not us getting our doctrinal ducks in a row. Not us understanding all the nuances that is here. Not us performing or being born somewhere or paying something. It is a person. That is our salvation. Salvation is Jesus. Salvation is personified in Him. His life, His work, His immeasurable love for His people. God alone redeems our lost souls. There is nothing that we contribute. Jesus alone redeems us. So, as we gather rejoicing today that this salvation is given and Simeon rejoices in it, we rejoice as well. There's a unique line there in verse 32. Light for revelation to the Gentiles. If you've seen Jesus as Savior, you too, like Simeon, have seen enough. You have, as a Gentile, seen the salvation of the world. This world holds nothing else we need. We are ready to leave at any moment when we've seen Christ as our Savior. In addition to the Gentiles, Jesus is for the glory of Israel. Those seem to be distinguished here. Glory to the people chosen to bless the Gentiles through this Son. Genesis chapter 12. So we look at verse 33 then, and as his father and mother marveled at what was said about him, they marveled at what was said. Certainly this song that Simeon composes as he lifts up the child in exaltation and worship. But they're mar- they marvel. This is Luke's favorite word in the book of Acts for those who looked upon the miracles of Christ. They marveled. They were awed by what they saw. 
They've carried from Bethlehem one who is received as the light of the world. How do you make sense of that? It was an awesome reception, and they felt the wonder of it. They did not yet see, but they held in their arms the hinge pin of history. The Redeemer who would crush Satan's head. The Gospel light that would shine from Israel to the nations. This infant was the one whom Genesis 3.15 prophesied and that Genesis 12.1-9 pointed to in salvation. So Simeon blesses God for Messiah's birth and then we see that he prophesies Messiah's ministry. And here something of a dark cloud comes over the scene It's a passing cloud. It's not noted probably very carefully at this point, but it's certainly there. Verse 34, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. As the ultimate sign revealing God's will and purposes, this child is going to divide people. Those who receive Him will rise to life eternal. Those who reject Him will enter into condemnation. Many will stumble in response to this man. Others will be lifted up out of the dust to glory. That's His ministry. Judas will hang himself. Peter will repent. One thief will curse him. The other will follow him that day to heaven. He will be, it says here, a sign that is opposed, revealing the hearts of many. That he will be a sign of God's saving purposes that many will reject. His birth was maligned. His miracles attributed to the power of Satan. His resurrection denied and covered up. And His second coming scoffed at. As properly noted in the text, there's this ominous parenthetical prophecy concerning Mary in verse 35. We could center on this alone in our time together. But it says a sword will pierce through your own soul as well. The imagery is pretty gruesome, isn't it? Mary is not being spared from reality. She's being blessed by this man, and yet she's not spared. The division, the divisive nature of Jesus' ministry will cut like a broadsword or a lance clean through her heart. I think that's the contextual setting of it, that it refers to Christ's ministry, to the way that He ministers. And as we look at her interaction with Him in those ministries, the rejection that He receives, the ridicule that He receives, is horribly difficult for her to bear. Then ultimately, as she stands to watch her sinless son die, Human language is put together here by God's direction 
And the only parallel that's found is it will be like someone took a broadsword and ran you through. Jesus is the ultimate litmus test of the soul. And that reality divides all people and will for all eternity. In the moment where that takes place, this will not be easy. This reality will not lie easily upon any who follow Christ. Certainly not in, on Mary. And really to our own day, is it not the case? As Christ's people, there are relatives, there are friends, there are neighbors, there is a culture, and there are nations who insist every day that Jesus is a hoax to be rejected or at least a meaningless man to be ignored. He is the edge of the wedge. All souls go down one side or the other. Lifted up by Christ or pulled down by Him. But a beautiful example of those who rise is seen in the next movement of the narrative. And the newborn Messiah is proclaimed by Anna. Verse 36, And there was a prophetess, Anna, the, pro- the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. This is all we know about her. It's fascinating that she's a daughter of the tribe of Asher. Asher is one of those lost tribes. Long ago, Asher had been taken captive into Assyria. So apparently, I can't wait to meet her either. It would be very fun to interview. But apparently, her people came south to, the, to Judah and left before being taken captive to Assyria and being lost and assimilated there, and then would have made their way to Babylon and back. And somehow in all of that, she kept her identity as one of the tribe of Asher. So again, we look forward to meeting her, to knowing how that works, but at least that's just described. It's all we have about her here in verse 36. Continuing on there, she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. Uh, And then as a widow until she was 84. The the marginal reading takes the text to mean that she was 84 years in widowhood or 84 years on the planet. Uh, It doesn't make a lot of difference, particularly in that day. She's a really old lady. Uh, she's, She's been around a while. Like Simeon, she was also God-fearing and served the Lord in a unique way. We find there at the middle of verse 37, she did not depart from the temple worshiping and fasting in prayer night and day. Worshiping, often translated serving. Uh, Don't think of worship as just singing, but worship in the sense of service at the temple, everything that that involved a wide range of application in the context of temple worship. So she probably volunteered in serving at the temple. Likely attended both the morning and evening sacrifice on a daily basis. It's unlikely that she lived on the grounds of the temple, but probably ministered there every day of her life for these many, many years. Giving herself to fasting and prayer. She's obviously not fasting daily, But it probably meant that she skipped a lot of meals in the process of her prayers. She oriented her life 
in anticipation of Messiah, even setting food aside to intensify her prayers. What a strange concept for us, and maybe particularly at this time of year, fasting. To set food aside in anticipation of Messiah. I wonder if you've ever done this. To set food aside to say that, to plead that Christ would come. And what's the connection there? Fasting from food may not be possible for everyone, and no one should feel compelled to do that. But if it is possible, you will never fast for Christ's return unless you really have that close to heart. It's something that you really long for. We set food aside for things that are very, very meaningful to us. Fasting with prayer may even serve as a spiritual discipline that helps to bring the return of Christ to our understanding and deepens that desire of our heart. And as we would suggest in the simplest of all fastings would be to eat a normal meal in the evening, wait to eat until the next evening. And every time your stomach reminds you, I want food, pray for the Lord's return. And every time that you pray, asking God to help you make this, you pray for the Lord's return. It's a very simple process. But to just for 24 hours set food aside in that most simple way, from evening to evening, and in between to be praying for the return of the Lord. I don't know precisely what her practice was by any means. Certainly was more intense than that. But that's a way to, to think of it. Something to do that as we uh, seek the Lord's coming. There's no merit in this. Nothing gained by it. But there is a closeness to the Lord that is driven by the hunger of the stomach. There's something that just forces us to say, I am weak. I am dependent, and in this moment, I, I don't know how it's true, true for you, but I can often forget about prayer. We can have passages of our day when we're not thinking of prayer. We need to be always in prayer, in a spirit of prayer, but many times we just don't think of it. When you're hungry, you think of it. You say, why am I hungry? Oh yeah, that's right. Whatever was her practice, she was given to prayer and fasting pleading for the return of Messiah, for the coming of Messiah. And so what it would say to us, again, I love to meet her and talk with her, but what it would certainly say to us is that the harsh suffering of widowhood and the humiliation of life as an, in an occupied nation did not shrivel her soul. It knit her heart to God and it fueled a confident hope in the promised deliverer. And here he was, right in her sights. Here he was. Coming up, verse 38, at that very hour, and I, I take that to mean at the very hour, there's an imprecision in their timing there. I take that to mean that while these things were happening, while Joseph and Mary were at the temple, while Simeon was blessing the Christ child, at that very hour she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him. To all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem, she began to proclaim what Simeon was saying, that this is Messiah. 
to speak of him. The original text would indicate she kept on speaking about Jesus. This was a pattern of her life to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. I think that's the target audience she's talking to because you had to be fairly discreet. You didn't talk about a king in Israel around Herod and his people. Pretty paranoid guy, and we know what happens. So I don't think she ran around telling everyone, uh, but the religious rulers of Israel were certainly not a target of her witness, not at this point. They were largely seeking the praise of man and how to keep hold of their power. They really weren't seeking Messiah's coming unless it meant to increase their own power. But there was a remnant of people who quietly waited for Messiah in genuine faith. In fact, there was even a name for these people. They were called the quiet ones. The quiet in the land, literally. The quiet in the land. These were ones who were not clamoring for some type of military intervention. These were individuals who prayed and waited for the real thing. Indeed, they were waiting for the real one. She knew who they were. She knew probably everything about the temple complex. Who was there when and what they were who connected to and everything. She knew who the waiters were. She knew who the quiet ones in the land were. And to them she kept proclaiming, He's here. He's here. He's here. So we find in this familiar passage of our Lord's birth, a rare moment in which the longing expectation for Messiah's arrival is fulfilled. God's people have almost always been awaiting people. The only distinction is this brief period of time when Christ was here. We could go back to the promise of Abraham some 2,200 years before Christ. His offspring would be a blessing to the nations, and the nation waited and waited and waited. And very long before that, in the Garden of Eden, God prophesied that one would come to crush Satan's head. And all those many, many centuries of waiting for that prophecy to be fulfilled. Simeon and Anna grant us that brief glimpse of the joy that every believer will experience who awaits Messiah's second coming, His coming 2.0. We see in this narrative joy. I mean, there's a heaviness to it as it speaks about what Christ's ministry will be, but it, is, it cannot squash the joy and the thanksgiving. It just overwhelms it all because they had seen their Messiah. So this first coming was a brief moment in history. His second will establish a kingdom that will be handed over to the Father and will never fade or fall for all of eternity. As his earthly journey came to a close, the Apostle Paul wrote this to Timothy, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the, faith, the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing.
This indicates on the one hand that longing for Christ's return is a moral standard for which we will be held responsible as His people. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will long for my return. It indicates, on the other hand, that seeing Him face to face will fully satisfy our every longing for the Savior we have not seen, yet mysteriously love. What a privileged place we hold in this whole line of anticipation, this long wait for Messiah to come. Unlike Simeon and Anna, we know with far greater precision what Messiah did to rescue sinners and prepare for us a place in heaven with Him. Simeon and Anna only knew that Messiah had been redeemed in fulfillment of Mosaic law. They would not have grasped at that point as we grasped the time when the Son was not redeemed. When the Father chose not to spare His life, but to give Him up as a sacrifice for many. A sacrifice that would die in our place to pay the penalty of our sins. It's this one that we await. The Messiah that would come. The one who would come to crush Satan's head. We enjoy that with Simeon and Anna. That too is our anticipation. But ours now so much fuller. The Son who is not redeemed, but who died in our place to redeem us. This is the one we anticipate. It is this one for whom we wait. 